<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to another weekend bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm Brian McCullough. As promised, one of my favorite ever cybersecurity interviews with Cyber Reasons CISO Israel Barak explaining to us all how these cyber ransom incidents work. Enjoy. Israel Barak, thanks for coming on the show. You're the CISO at Cyber Reason, right? That is right. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Yeah, well, so I wanted to kind of lead off with the joke that you guys probably seem like you've been busy lately. But <laughs> but actually, is that the right way to frame it? Like, have especially ransomware attacks gotten more common lately? Or is it just that there's been a lot of high profile incidents lately that a layperson like me is more likely to be aware of? So I think one of the things that are happening in the ransomware space is that the impact of the average ransomware uh, incident on an enterprise uh, enterprise uh, victim has become a lot bigger. Right in the past, um, ransomware incidents were either mitigated with you know simple something as simple as having a working backup of of some of the data that you have on on the endpoints, or they were just not something that was very impactful to enterprise organizations in general, and they were more impactful on smaller businesses and, and individuals that ended up losing, you know, losing photos and the likes of that. But over the past two years, and this past year especially, ransomware operators have shifted a lot of their resources to focus specifically on what's going to create an impact and a large impact uh, on, on, on enterprise organizations. And I think we're seeing that every day in the field. Well, I mean, almost to that end, and I'm already going to start bringing up Colonial Pipeline, but I feel like it was generally believed that you know, until recently, that only a state-sponsored bad actor would be able to paralyze, you know, critical infrastructure. But is that, are we just seeing that the scale and like the ease of doing this thing, this sort of thing has shifted a bit? Yeah, so so you're right. I think when we're thinking oftentimes about industrial control systems and operational technology networks for manufacturing environments, um, and we think you know we we try to uh, portray to ourselves who might be the uh, the probable threat actor that would target these, then we often think about the state sponsored sponsored organizations, especially when we read the uh, the CISA reports and and others, other DHS related uh, information, and 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 they often portray that picture or they paint the picture as primarily a, uh, a state-sponsored uh, adversary. I think what we're seeing on a day-to-day -day basis is that the vast majority of, of threat groups that are targeting environments that are either uh, can impact OT and industrial control system environments or by themselves, OT and industrial control system environments are actually cybercrime groups. And, and the vast majority of them really have no specific expertise 
in those environments. They don't know how to operate that type of equipment. They don't have specific expertise in OT technologies. But what they do know how to do is to run, you know, various cybercrime playbooks and specifically uh, ransomware playbooks. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, we saw this with Colonial Pipeline, the impact was to their IT environment, not so much to the industrial control system environment, but the impact to the IT environment led to uh, mandatory support systems that are needed to deliver a service being shut down. And hence, even though the the the, the uh, production or the OT environment wasn't impacted directly, uh, based on publicly available information, uh, the the impact sustained in the IT environment essentially led to shutting down the business uh, for uh, for a p- fairly long period of time. So the what you're saying is the ultimate fear of you know someone causes a a reactor to overheat or like you know <laughs> the pipeline to explode or something <laughs> that's not specifically in this case what we're dealing with it's more just um, locking up your data. You know the the interesting thing when you when you look at these cyber crime groups that end up impacting OT environments and we've seen a number of cases just in this past year of of cyber crime actors that ended up impacting. Uh, an OT environment. Um, the biggest risk in 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 that is is actually it's actually I think interesting because when you think about a, an a state sponsored uh, adversary that goes into a, an OT environment, usually these adversaries. Um, practice a lot before they actually carry out a mission. So they, when they go into an on-target operation, they usually understand what is it that they're going to find when they get there, and they usually practice in advance on how to safely operate that thing and not lead to an undesirable impact. Because usually they would try to, you know, lay low and stay sort of stayed on the radar for a long period of time and only cause an impact when they want to cause an impact, but avoid undesirable results. Um, so to a certain extent, from a safety perspective, <laughs> when you think about it, it's actually safer to have an APT actor in your OT environment than a cybercrime actor, because a cybercrime actor, they don't necessarily practice on this in advance. They don't have any sort of OT expertise. They go into the environment usually for the sole purpose of wrecking havoc, right? And, uh, and then getting a ransom payday out of it, right? It can be locking down data, disrupting services, and uh, stealing, exfiltrating data out of it, but primarily the service disruption uh, can lead to, especially in an OT environment, can lead to uh, safety issues that uh, were not intended, right? And the, the threat actor did not actually intend to disrupt the production activity or the manufacturing activity, but they ended up causing that because of it. In your, in your mind, it's almost more dangerous that these people <laughs> are sort of willy-nilly and not practiced on it. So you're, you're yes. almost more afraid of what happened to yes. Pipeline. Okay. I, I, I think the, uh, the, the, the bigger risk here is the un- unintended consequences of having these threat actors uh, be able to impact those, those environments. Well, so uh, this this dark side group, specifically in the Colonial Pipeline attack, um, you know, on the show, I said that what blew my mind about it is it felt like ransomware as a service, like they have this whole platform of tools that they're willing, like a software as a service sort of thing, like here's, uh, use this one unified dashboard to do all the things you need, you know, um, is, is that sort of thing something new, this ransomware as a service thing that's like they're they're just a platform for any other actors out there that want to do dirt 
Right. So uh, ransomware as a service is not is not a new thing. It's it's been around for quite quite some time, or the model has been yeah. around for quite some time, uh, and the value proposition hasn't changed uh, much of what a, a ransomware as a service platform would offer its clients and its partners. Uh, generally speaking, the the primary value proposition is payment processing, right? Because anyone can encrypt files. Getting away with ransom extortion is something that's a little bit more difficult, right? Especially after you get paid and especially after you want to convert that crypto into real world money, right? So getting away with that is a little bit more difficult. So and not, the anonymity in the payment processing is actually the number one value proposition that a RAS or a ransomware as a service mm. operator offers their clients because the client drops the ransom, uh, the ransomware, and they compromise the network. But it's the RAS vendor that manages the entire payment processing and the back and forth monetary process that ends up putting money in the actual attacker's hands happens in the background between the RAS operator and the affiliate, right? And the attacker, right? So, you know, the attacker themselves are not exposed to tracking of crypto transfers. They're not exposed to other sorts of techniques that are based, basically allow law enforcement to track monetary, monetary transactions, right? It all happens behind the scenes. So payment processing is the number one value proposition of a RAS operator. And that hasn't really hasn't changed much. The bigger thing that changed, I think, over the years is the level of specialization that exists in this ecosystem where everyone sort of knows what they're supposed to do, right? Every vendor or part of that ecosystem, they know what their specialization is, and they usually focus on building that specialization and delivering more value around that. So for example, DarkSide focuses on ransomware as a service, right? Offering a you know payment processing and a platform to interact with the victim and and uh, and, and and monetize on a successful attack. Um, but one of the things that they don't do, for example, is initial access. They don't hack into target environments, mm. and oftentimes the people that use DarkSide don't hack into into target environments. So what they do is DarkSide partners with um, organizations or teams that provide initial access as an example for a partner. These teams specialize in just one thing, getting initial access into organizations. They open the door, right? They gain access into the network and then they sell that access to a dark side user or affiliate, as sometimes they're called. The affiliate buys access into that network for you know, $10, $15, $20, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Uh, they buy the access, and then they carry out the rest of the mission to exfiltrate data, to move laterally in the network. And then at the end, they drop the dark side payload, and then dark side uh, encrypts the data, make sure that you know relevant data is exfiltrated, services are disrupted in as far as as in as wide as as range as in scope as possible in the target network, and then they collect they, they do the monetary transaction with a target or with the victim. So I think the most interesting change is really this specialization that exists uh, in the uh, in the ransomware ecosystem. that has changed a little bit and again please forgive me for being completely a noob for all of this stuff but like colonial faced um um a, a double ransom essentially right like mm-hmm. and I, I get the sense that that's new because 
um, you know, I've heard, you know, people are told, you know, back up your data so that if this happens to you, you can, you'll have your own backups. So like essentially the, the ransom will be moot. Um, but this, this two-sided uh, double ransom thing sort of gets around that, right? Can you explain how that works? Yeah. So, so double extortion basically leverages three primary uh, drivers, Right, pressure uh, pressure areas that can lead a target into into negotiating with uh, with a criminal. Uh, pressure area number one actually has nothing to do with with data with data being encrypted. It's about service disruption. It's about uh, creating a situation where one day at a point, certain point of day, you know, people go into the office and manufacturing is shut down. Right. Or or their, you know, their IT, the entire IT infrastructure is shut down and they're unable to deliver a service. And so the the first impact is service disruption. They achieve that by encrypting not only data, but basically disrupting service uh, system configurations, right? Domain controllers, file servers, databases. They would go into all of these and create a major service disruption. Uh, so that's the first the first pressure point. If you want to go back, Mr. Victim, if you want if you want to regain business business con- business capability, business around business operations, then we need to have a con- you really need to have a conversation with us. A hundred percent, hundred percent. You're unable to operate. That's impact number one. Impact number two is we have your data and you're locked out of your data, right? So if you want your data and you want us to avoid exposing your intellectual property or the personal data, right, that you've, that exists in your system and that we stole from you, then you really need to have a conversation with us, right? And so those are the, the three key pressure points, the service disruption, the giving you your data back and uh, avoiding exposing all that um, sensitive information, maybe personal information that can be, you know, can lead to sanctions that, you know, regulatory sanctions if if exposed. Uh, that's the that's the third uh, pressure point. Um, having backups hopefully can help with one of these pressure points. Right, it can hopefully help you recover some of the data that was locked away, right, and encrypted. Uh, there's still challenges with that because a lot of organizations, even if they have backups, they may not be working backups, they may not be complete backups, et cetera, et cetera. But it's really just one pillar out of those three pillars. Usually it's about regaining business operations. That's the more impactful right, pressure point for most organizations because they do the math and they say, well, if we negotiate with these guys, mm-hmm. we may be able to get back in business within you know three, four, five days. If we don't negotiate with these guys, then we can still go back to business, maybe, but it will take us that much longer, and and that time equals money, and we need to think about what the best uh, what the best what what the best alternative is for now, and insurers in the space oftentimes also apply pressure to resolve this in the simplest and most straightforward way possible. Let's be real for a minute. Most guys would wear a t-shirt every day of their lives if they could. The problem is that most t-shirts are not acceptable to wear at work or out on a hot date night. But today's sponsor, Cuts, 
has finally changed that. Cuts t-shirts are such high quality, wrinkle-free, and so buttery soft that you can look like you're dressing up even when you're dressing down. Yeah, you heard that. Wrinkle-free. You never have to substitute comfort for fashion ever again. If you see me in a t-shirt, it's likely one from Cuts. I'm also a huge fan of their AO Five Pocket Pants, the right sort of step up from jeans without going all the way into dress pants, like literally my ideal Venn diagram of professional looking but comfortable feeling. When you touch something from Cuts, you can immediately feel the quality. Their proprietary fabric blends are ridiculously soft and breathable, they don't wrinkle, and they look way more expensive than they actually are. For a limited time, our listeners get 20% off your entire order when you use code RIDE at checkout. That's 20% off your order at cutsclothing.com with promo code RIDE. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Experience the perfect blend of style and comfort with Cuts Clothing. Cutsclothing.com, promo code RIDE for 20% off. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity. But user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Okta-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Uh, that makes me wonder, and I'm not asking you to name names, I'm just, I'm just broadly. Are most people just paying up at this point? Like, is that kind of the standard practice at this moment in time? So it's 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 a very good question. I think we're seeing a lot of a lot of enterprise organizations paying the ransom and treating this as tuition. Uh, they're basically treating this as okay. We we sort of needed this to um, to understand the nature of the risk and what needs to be done to uh, mitigate it going forward. But uh, they're positively considering paying the ransom or negotiating the ransom. Um, to accelerate the time that it will take them to regain business operations. Um, the other thing that we've been seeing, and I think it's an interesting trend, is that some enterprise organizations have been uh, advocating for adding a specialized clause into cyber insurance policies, basically extortion, cyber extortion policies, that would allow a victim or a, an insured party to refuse to pay the ransom. That, that's that's a very interesting thing, right? The the insured, right? The enterprise organization, the insured want to have a clause in the insurance policy that allows them to refuse to pay the ransom. Insurance companies are often exactly to pay. exactly gotcha. because in in most cyber insurance policy policies today, it's going to be the insurers, the insurance company's decision 
whether to pay or not to pay. And basically they can they can tell an enterprise organization or an insured entity that they, they can choose between either carrying the entire cost themselves or negotiate a ransom payment right, that will be covered by the insurance companies, at least at least in large portion of it. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, that's yeah. that, that's a challenge. Uh, okay, uh, this also made me think of one more completely naive question, which is: once you've been penetrated, like, is the game over, and the only decision is whether or not to pay? Like, once you get that pop up that says you've been compromised, your data is encrypted, are you pretty much screwed, and there are very few options available to you? So the, uh, the the biggest or the biggest uh, the biggest challenge here and opportunity for defenders is is to reduce mean time to response. Um, so when we look at a, at a, at a typical double extortion, <clears throat> um, it's uh, it's it's an operation, right? It, it doesn't happen over a minute or two minutes. It's an operation that an adversary is conducting in a victim's network. Right? These operations can take anywhere between several hours to several days to several weeks, depending on the size of the network between the moment in time where the adversary was able to gain that initial access until you actually see that ransom note and there's a large scale business disruption. What that means is that what we really need to get better in as defenders isn't to get ourselves out of a situation of here's a ransom note and the entire business is now down. And now we sort of need to devise a creative way to get out of this situation. What we really need to get better in is reducing our the, the, the time that it takes us to detect when that adversaries are in, is in our environment, mm. but they're fairly early on in their operation. And if we can detect that early enough, and contain and remove them from the environment early enough, then we would be in a position to avoid that entire that entire impact. Well, which um, believe me, because I've read the ad copy, uh, I'm sure Cyber Reason will be happy to help you with. <laughs> You've been very uh, kind sponsors of the show. Let me let me wrap up by asking um, two slightly broader things. Like I, I uh, to to prep for this, I was reading a bunch of blog posts on the Cyber Reason website. And um, one of the posts made an analogy that occurred to me, which was um, to the golden age of piracy. And by piracy, I'm not talking about Napster. I'm talking about literally, <laughs> you know, 1600s, 1700s, like literally, you know, uh, Blackbeard, people on boats and, and uh, Queen Elizabeth and enabling people to steal Spanish bullion and things like that. <laughs> um, is... Um, is that a, a good analogy in the sense that obviously, and we haven't even gotten into things like the solar winds hacked and things like that, but it d does that hold right now where you have for sure nation states doing, you know, their actual security services doing dirt for uh, the government, but they're also sort of not just looking the other way, but sort of enabling this sort of, what did they used to call them? Freebooters, mm. you know, um, uh, the, the actual piracy like they used to do. You have plausible mm -hmm. deniability mm -hmm. where, you know, you might certain people might not be pissed if a pipeline went down on the east coast of the United States. <laughs> they, they, their fingerprints aren't on it, but they, it doesn't like it's not like they're mad about it. Um, it so it, am I right about that? That like that's sort of yeah. what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what we're seeing is uh, the, the answer is yes. I think in, in some regions of the world, and I think you can see a very prolific e ecosystem that does it in, in Russia, and you can see another 
uh, very elaborate ecosystem around that in, in China and a couple of other places. But I think what we're seeing in those in those areas is that an ecosystem was formed between the government and private organizations that we may refer to as cybercrime organizations, but in their own home, home countries, they may not be referred to as such. Uh, and, and the relationships are intricate, right? It's, it's quid pro quo, right? On the one hand, you uh, know that as a private organization, you may get called in to carry out some outsourced work uh, for the government as a government contractor. But on the other hand, if you play along with that, then you enjoy a certain freedom to carry out private endeavors, right? Uh, and, and oftentimes these, these ransomware operations and others, by the way, other forms of cyber crime aren't considered in those, in those ecosystems as criminal activities in the sense that they need to be they need to be investigated, and maybe, maybe there there has to be some sort of, maybe they need to be some some charges pressed uh, um, against them. Um, it, the 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 interesting thing is the dynamics in terms of in terms of relationships between government agencies and the individuals and corporates that conduct this type of activity. Um, you also see situations where in some of these some of these regions, it's it comes down to people. Right? There are people that, you know, during part of their day, they do government work and they're government employees, but they also enjoy a certain degree of freedom to do other things, right? To pursue private endeavors that, again, we may refer to as cybercrime activities, but are not referred to as such in those places that are completely private. And they're just, you know, it's completely uh, sort of a sort of a private endeavor and, and, and everyone else, everyone looks the other way when they do it. And so you see both organizations that serve as subcontractors or as contractors for the government to carry out outsourced missions, but also enjoy a certain degree of freedom to carry out private private cybercrime endeavors. And you also see it on the individual level where certain, you know, just just individuals that are government employees almost during the day right is in and in, in doing private private endeavors that are cybercrime endeavors during the the second part of their day well listen i mean sir francis drake uh was a pirate but also was a sir got very rich from doing piracy <laughs> but also uh you know was ennobled and was queen elizabeth's favorite back in the day uh, the history hat there sorry everybody but um my final question you know obviously for any enterprise listening, large or small, uh, maybe go talk to Cyber Reason; <laughs> they'll help you out. But uh, for for individuals, average Joes, are the basic, simple things that an individual can do to protect themselves still just password managers and and two factor authentication, or is there something else we should be doing? Yeah. Uh, so the biggest, the biggest uh, initial access vectors, right? The biggest uh, techniques that ransomware operators and, and and affiliates and partners of ransomware operators use to start that process or start start a ransomware activity are still very much the same three things, right? That we've been we've been seeing over the years. It's the exact same three things. Uh, they just you know grow. You know, they just get better in specialization and in, in, in updating those procedures to use newly acquired information. But the, the top three procedures that they're using to drive ransomware operations are number one, phishing, right? Number one, it's still 
user user based execution, uh, email based phishing, or social that was, that media was actually phishing. that was a question that I never got to. So even with these corporate and huge big you know headline hacks, it's still that it's still just someone clicking a link that they shouldn't have. That's the number one avenue to get in. That's still the number one avenue that these threat actors are using. Um, so user awareness training, right? Uh, email filtering, web filtering. Uh, endpoint security tools that can block malicious content from getting executed on the endpoint. Uh, uh, better security hygiene, reducing the attack surface of, of the endpoint. It's the exact same thing for uh, that we've been we've been using over the years. I've been preaching for over the years to reduce the or reduce the likelihood of a phishing attack being successful. The second primary vector that they're using are. Um, uh, in our uh, unprotected online services, right? Things like RDP, right? So if we're hosting a service and we have RDP access or SSH access, we have a server that's hosting one of our systems on the cloud or on-prem. It has a weak password, maybe. Uh, it's accessible via the internet. That's the second most prevalent uh, entry vector that these uh, these actors will, will use. So we really want to make sure that we... Um, properly manage our credentials, privileged account management, two-factor authentication, et cetera, to make sure that these, you know, these weak uh, remote access uh, interfaces aren't taken advantage of. And the third uh, entry vector that these guys are using are taking advantage of vulnerable or exploits or software vulnerabilities that exist in, uh, in services that we have online. So if we, for example, if we have an email system that we host somewhere, if we have a Microsoft Exchange system that we host that is out, offers an Outlook web access for our teams to you know, have email when they're remote, email service when they're remote, we really want to make sure that we patch it right, against the most recently found vulnerabilities. And so everything that has to do with software patching, uh, attack surface reduction in terms of uh, network access, to ports that are not and services that are not being used on these uh, on these uh, internet accessible um, software products, and that's generally speaking reducing the attack surface by deploying most the most recent um, patches and keeping our software up to date. That's probably I would say the number one most effective thing to have against that third entry entry uh, vector. So just best practices and hygiene and reducing the, you know, <laughs> the available target area. Uh, it's, you know, cri crime never sleeps. It's never going to go away. But if you just lower your profile, that's that's the best you can hope for, essentially. Right. Yeah. Uh, Israel, thank you so much. That's one of the best conversations I've ever had about cybersecurity. So uh, much appreciated. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. 